0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret history and little-known fascinating facts behind your favorite movies, music, TV shows, and more. We're two guys with too much free time on our hands. My name's Jordan Rontag. And I'm Alex Heigl. And uh, today's episode's a tribute to a real one, the late, great... Bob Saget, who passed away on January 9th of this year at the age of 65, far too young. In his honor, we're going to take a look at the television classic, Full House. And I don't know about you, Heigl, but uh, I engaged with very little pop culture growing up in the 90s. I was like a weird little kid watching Nick at Night and listening to my Dion on the Belmont's 45s. But I watched (laughs) Full House all the damn time. And, And Bob Saget, especially as the host of America's Funniest Home Videos, was just the definition of cool to me. I mean, I know that probably says more about me than it does about any of his formidable hosting talents, but <laughs> I, I just, I loved him so much. And uh, that show, you know, it's it just, it really is for everybody. It's like, it, it's so delightfully inoffensive, but just such yeah. a pure pleasure. I really love it. I had um the aristocrats
3: passed to me by like a, <laughs> an older cool guy at one point in high school. And so that's like, after not thinking about Full House for a decade, I had like Saget's bit in, it, in that just blew the my doors of perception wide open. So I'd like <laughs> you all to keep that energy as we journey down the tunnel of Full House.
0: It's true. It really that really does display his range. He could come up with, um. <laughs> For anyone who hasn't seen the Aristocrats documentary, first of all, prepare to have your visions of Danny Tanner absolutely obliterated. Uh, it, It features a series of comedians all riffing on this old vaudeville joke, and they're trying to retell this joke in the most creatively filthy way as possible. And it's just the most perfect showcase for Bob Saget's unique comedic talents which as we'll talk about over the course of this episode were definitely not on display on full house a lot of people did not
3: know about his stand-up i mean that was the big thing i remember reading about that and like rolling stone everyone was like bob Saget's like star making turn it was like well he, you know he had a, he has a career <laughs> he had a good run yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> anyway we've got a lot to get into from john stamos's over-the-top disney collection to the olsen twins baby dentures the time the cast did whippets on the set and Uncle Joey's famous flatulence, here's everything you didn't know about Full House. To get started with Full House, it was the brainchild of producer Jeff Franklin, who had worked on sitcoms like Laverne and Shirley and Bosom Buddies with Tom Hanks, and uh, It's Gary Shandling's Show, and also the classic 80s high school movie, Just One of the Guys, which uh, mm-hmm. if you haven't seen, is, is, is very funny. Now, his initial pitch was very different. It was called House of Comics, which followed the adventures of three single stand-up comedians living under one roof, which honestly, I don't know if you've been around many stand-up comedians, but that sounds like Hell. Like three Ugh. comedians just trying to like you know constantly outdo each other for bits around the house. Like
3: yeah, good lord! Have you ever dr- just gone drinking with comedians? Yes, like three of them is too many.
0: No, yeah, that that would that would never work. And uh, apparently, ABC felt the same way because when he pitched it to ABC, they had some notes. And this was the mid-80s at a time when shows like Family Ties and The Cosby Show were doing really well with their family-oriented themes and, you know, morals at the end of every episode and stuff like that. So uh, ABC said a phrase that we probably will never hear again, which is, can you make this more like Cosby? (laughs) So Jeff Franklin made some changes and uh, the amazing thing is he thought that ABC would hate his idea. Like, he thought that this idea, the scenario that he dreamed up of a widower having his best friend and brother-in-law move in to help raise his kids, he thought the scenario was so wildly unlikely and that it just existed nowhere in the real world that it just seemed too implausible. But ABC ended up going for it. So they got around to casting and Bob Saget was always in the running to be, uh, you know, at the top of the list to be Danny Tanner, the uh, the widower, the patriarch of the Tanner family. And he'd been the comedian that warmed up the studio audience at Bosom Buddies, which Jeff Franklin had a hand in. So they were they were well acquainted. I think he also had a a small role on an episode of Bosom Bodies as, like, Bob the comic or something. He also got the producer's attention with a role in the 1987 Richard Pryor movie, Critical Condition, which is, you know, kind of uh, hints at Bob Saget's true comedic, you know, he definitely is more... Sensibilities, yeah. Yeah, more Richard Pryor, less Danny Thomas, shall we say, or, you know, Leave It to Beaver. But Bob Saget was under contract to do the CBS Morning program and couldn't get out of it, so they moved down the list to paul riser uh you know later of mad about you fame and aliens wait what yeah he's in aliens oh my god i totally forgot you're right yeah he's like the corporate (laughs) stooge in aliens but he, um, instead, Paul Reiser opted to star in the other show being made at this time about multiple paternal figures called My Two Dads, which uh, it's kind of amazing that both of these shows ran at the same time. But uh, My Two Dads only ran three seasons, whereas Full House ran eight. But I guess he had Mad About You on the horizon, so I guess we'll call it a draw uh, between the two of them. <laughs> but uh, yeah, definitely totally different show with Paul Reiser as uh, as Danny Tanner. So let's do a Danny Tanner lead actor score update for a moment, shall we? They can't get Bob Saget. Paul Reiser's passed, but the network goes ahead and makes the pilot with an actor called John Posey, whose only major credit before that was a movie called Manhunter. And I have to admit, I was not familiar with Manhunter, but it's sort of famous because it's the first on on-screen appearance of Dr. Hannibal Lecter. This is years before Jonathan Demme's Silence of the Lambs. And Lecter's played in Manhunter, not by Anthony Hopkins, but by Brian Cox, who's probably more famous these days for portraying Logan Roy on Succession, John Posey doesn't have a big part in this movie. I think he's like a lab technician who gets killed early on. So, this full house pilot's a big deal for him, I and mean, it's shaping up to be a big breakout moment. And then Bob Saget stages a last minute comeback and totally ruins it for him. Apparently he got fired from the morning program, like right before it ended up getting yanked off the air anyway. uh, So they ended up bringing Saget back after the pilot was made, the unaired pilot was made. And um, John Posey went on to, uh, I I hope he had a very good life, but uh, Full House got (laughs) their first choice lead, Bob Saget. Yeah,
3: and, uh, you know, the rest of the cast comes together, as as these things do, with interesting little narratives around them. Uh, Dave Coulier was originally going to be on Saturday Night Live. Dave
0: Coulier was uh, Uncle Joey.
3: But Dana Carvey came in and threw a grenade into Dave Coulier's life. Anyway, Saget and Coulier were buddies. You know, the L.A. comedy scene is small. Everybody knows each other. And Coulier actually couch surfed with Saget during his early days in, as a comedian in the late 70s.
0: Um, Which is amazing because that was pretty much the role he played on Full House.
3: Yeah. Yeah. They didn't really bother to disguise that too much. But Coulier would eventually audition for SNL and and come very close to grasping that particular brass ring. Um, (laughs) An NBC exec named Brandon Tartikoff decided that Coulier was too close to Dana Carvey. Which which I can
0: see it. You think so? I mean, I, I guess I'm not super familiar with Dave Coulier's stand-up, but just like their vibe, the kind of like blonde impressionist, like, I, I don't know, I mean, I've, all right, <laughs> I know that's a very wide, you know, category, yeah, but
3: casting a wide net when, I know. You, when you talk about that. Um, what else did Tartikoff do? I
0: mean, Brandon Tartikoff was kind of a legend. I think he... Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. He, he developed
3: Punky Brewster. He had, you know, Hill Street Blues, L.A. Law, Law and Order, ALF,
0: Family, Fa- family Ties. ties. The, the great thing about Family Ties is a great story about him. I, I yeah. guess they wanted to cast Michael J. Fox as the lead in, you know, Alex P. Keaton and Family Ties and, and Tartikoff thought that, thought he wasn't right for it. And he said, that's a face you're never going to see on a lunchbox. So, of course, oh, when, yeah. uh, when Alex P. Keaton became the break art star of the show and Michael J. Fox became a huge deal who was literally on lunch boxes. Michael J. Fox sent him a lunch box with his face on it with a note that said, Here, you can eat, you can put your crow for lunch in this. Um,
3: yeah, man saved Seinfeld anyway, but you know, tartikoff has got some hits, he's got some misses.
0: Let Dave Couillet uh, fall but... through the cracks. <laughs>
3: Apparently, he spared the cast of SNL from one very particular aspect of Dave Coulier's celebrity, which is his ass. Uh, Do you want to elaborate on that? Well, Coulier and Saget were buddies, but Saget apparently did not mention his ass. Uh, Because Dave Coulier's gastrointestinal situation has passed into legend. Um, It even in a 1993 entertainment weekly profile of full house it just got to mention that dave coulier farted all the time in saget's 2014 memoir dirty daddy he wrote the set always smelled like his dave coulier's ass all the show's eight seasons of outtake gag reels have the whole cast leaving the stage abruptly the moment dave quote releases his ass fumes it gave true meaning to the term gag reel. <laughs> and this even passes into... There's one thing I want you to take with you from this episode. It's Dave Coulier's ass. Because this even made it into John Stamos's wedding. Uh, all three of them were at John Stamos's wedding. Which apparently, thankfully, was outdoors. Knowing what we know about Dave Coulier. And a plane flew overhead. And someone... <laughs> someone made a joke about it sounding like Dave's farts. <laughs> and apparently he was able to time these farts to such a degree that he would say he would drop the catchphrase that would get the get the laugh track and follow it up with a fart what's the catchphrase oh it's cut it out with the accompanying hand (laughs) gesture and then a fart that (laughs) clears the entire room god love dave coulier that's incredible but you know at this point in 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 pop culture nerddom a- annals the first thing you think of is with dave coulier if it isn't full house and cut it out it's Alanis baby that
0: is right i mean we can't mention dave coulier without uh bringing up Alanis morissette uh everyone knows this story so we'll just gloss over this real quick Pro- probably the most persistent rumor surrounding really anyone on in the full house orbit is that Alanis morissette wrote her scorched earth breakup track you ought to know from her incredible record-breaking album, Jack a Little Pill, about her relationship with Dave Couillet. And then they were together when she was, I think, 18, and he was something like 33, if my math is right. And over... Who? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Over the years, (laughs) he's, he's teased that it was about him, but he's also denied it vehemently. He apparently was concerned enough when he first heard the song that he called Alanis and asked. And according to him, she said, well, it could be a bunch of people, but you can say whatever you want, which is a great way of letting that haunt him for the rest of his life. Um, (laughs) There's a great new uh, HBO documentary, Jagged, uh, about the making of Jack a Little Pill, and she kind of plays coy in that documentary too. Incredible record, really great documentary too. Highly recommend it. Uh, but these days, uh, Dave says that it's this quote, "silly urban legend" that I just have to laugh at, which I guess is probably to laugh to keep from crying because that song is absolutely <laughs> brutal. Um, it's worth noting, not to shame anybody, but uh, Dave met his first wife, his ex-wife, on the set of Full House, where she was playing a grown-up Michelle Tanner uh, in a season three dream sequence. It's weird. Yeah, I I guess there's like nothing technically wrong with that, but somehow I don't know. It feels weird to me, but maybe it did to them too because the relationship did not last. (laughs) That's what wrecked it. This is just weird. Yeah, it's just too weird anyway moving right along to the other male lead on full house uncle jesse played of course by john stamos known hereafter on the show as just simply stamos he was you know the show's resident heartthrob. the producer creator jeff franklin uh sort of cast the part in his own image or so we thought he chose someone who was a, a fellow kind of playboy it's sort of the role that that uh jeff franklin saw himself uh john stamos i didn't realize he'd actually won an emmy for his role on the soap opera general hospital he played the part of blackie Parrish, and he also had a role in the very short-lived sitcom called you again with uh jack klugman who was uh oscar madison in the odd couple uh sitcom uh
3: and jeff franklin just really liked his style i don't wanna i don't wanna <laughs> on jeff franklin he's a good-looking guy but I was just going to say the hubris in looking at a young John Stamos and saying and casting him as your analog.
0: <laughs> How dare you! I mean, few who among us can reach the heights of, of John Stamos now or yeah. in his twenties. I mean, he, he's a no, he, he's yeah. a beautiful man. Um, and Jeff Franklin was really charmed by him. There was a um, a 2016 New York Times profile. Uh, Stamos recalled their first meeting over lunch. He said we talked about Elvis. We talked about girls make sure we hadn't dated the same girls. And by the time the appetizer had come, uh, Jeff Franklin said, do you want to do this show? And Stamos said, yeah, I'm in. The weird part was he was cast, you know, he famously plays Uncle Jesse. Uh, Originally, the character was named Adam Cochran, uh, which is a bit of a jump from Jesse Katsopoulos, which is how we know him as. (laughs) Uh, I mean, Adam Cochran just doesn't have the same ring doesn't no whatsoever. it doesn't work no. uncle adam doesn't even sound as good as uncle jesse no absolutely not so stamos felt the same way and he apparently changed it to jesse after uh elvis's twin brother who died at birth stamos in addition Weird. to bringing his uh his beautiful face brought his unholy love of elvis onto the show as well which we'll we'll get into more in a, in a moment so for the first season, Uncle Jesse was Jesse Cochran, but then uh, in the next season, the name abruptly changes to Jesse Katsopoulos, uh, supposedly to reflect uh, Stamos's Greek heritage. And the change, I think, is addressed in the series where they say that he went by Jesse Cochran as like a stage name for his burgeoning music career.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, that's maybe the most realistic aspect of the show is that someone in the music industry cho- told Jesse Katsopoulos that name wasn't <laughs> yeah. going to fly.
0: I don't know. I think it's a pretty good name, but... Uh, So in addition to bringing the name kind of piecemeal Jesse Katsopoulos to the show, he also brought Uncle Jesse's catchphrase, have mercy, which uh, I'm not even going to... Can you do a a, a have mercy for us? No. Okay. No, no one's doing it. Okay. Moving right along. (laughs) Uh, This is why we need the soundboard. Right. (laughs) All right. Well, we'll we'll try to add that in post. But uh, yeah, he had had his very sort of Elvis-esque have mercy, which... Kind of sounds more to me like Roy Orbison in Pretty Woman, I guess. Doesn't he say mercy? Yeah, because he Woman? says he. Li- yeah, he goes, "Whoa, mercy!" Oh, there you go. That's as close to have mercy as yeah. we're going to get out of you, I guess. Yeah, but um, but that wasn't something that was originally in the script. I think it's something that Stamos just came up with during shoots for the. Uh, I think it was the first episode, and it stuck. So joy. George- Jordan and I just had a conversation that
3: we are not going to let you be privy to about whether or not Have Mercy came from Pretty Woman or Elvis. Apparently, it was neither. Uh, Stamos told Entertainment Weekly in 2016 that that catchphrase came from Gary Marshall uh, just telling him verbatim, you need to have a catchphrase.
0: (laughs) Gary Marshall as in the creator of Happy Happy Days, Days, Laverne and Shirley, Mork and Mindy, I think. And...
3: Yeah, and and
0: it just th- this comes back to
3: commit to the bit because Marshall w- was saying, "Sit on it." From Happy Days, we had to put on Happy Days for ten weeks. He said the cast kept saying nobody laughs, and he just kept saying, "Hang on, it takes a minute. You got to commit to it." So Stamos says, "You know." That was his thing, that he just decided it was going to be Have Mercy. He does not say it came from Elvis, but what did he do? He committed to the bit. Anyway... There you go. I, <laughs> Sorry.
0: I, no, thank you for that. I, I mean, it definitely it, it definitely has tinges of Elvis to it, which is you know, it's something I love about John Stamos is that he's like me. He wears, the only way that John Stamos and I are alike, I should add, is that he wears <laughs> his obsessions on his sleeves. I mean, when I went to visit Graceland, Stamos did the audio guide. He loved the Beach Boys so much that he got him on as guest stars to the show. We'll talk more about that later. I mean, it, in a lot of ways, it seems like his whole acting career was just about creating excuses to indulge his passions, which... I am all about. I got into music journalism because I wanted to meet the Beatles. I mean, that was really, you know. So I, I really appreciate Stamos kind of making all these moments for his heroes. But my favorite fact about John Stamos is that he is a self-described Disney freak. He said that his favorite episode of the series was the two-parter when they go to Disney World. I think it's called "The House Meets the Mouse." That mm. John is such a fan of Disney that when Disneyland was replacing the huge sign that was in front of the park between I think 1989 and 1999, he bought. It on eBay for $36,000, beating out people like Michael Jackson. Apparently, Michael Jackson called him after he won and was like, well, I dig your stuff. We should go to Disneyland together, which is a reality show I would like to see. Um, now, each letter of this sign is 14 feet tall by eight feet wide, so he doesn't have it all on display. But in his backyard, just casually on display, is this giant D from the Disneyland sign, which is visible from the highway, and it's visible from, like, Google Earth and stuff. He calls it his Big D, because mm-hmm. why not? Um, he also has on display one of the fiberglass dumbos from the Flying Dumbo ride. He has a can-can girl from It's a Small World, and he has a head from uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, which, I mean, I, I am all about. I actually collected memorabilia from a, uh, a an amusement park that was in my hometown in central Massachusetts that closed down. And for the longest time, I had a sign from its midway just in my living room. I think you you may have seen it when you come over to visit. I have yeah. Seen it. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great uh, sign. So yeah, I feel like Stamos and I, on some level, would be friends. And um, <laughs> another point of bonding between Stamos and I is probably that we're uh, we're both hopeless romantics with unrequited crushes, which is kind of insane. And you look like John Stamos. I expect it when you look like me, but not Stamos. He loves Disneyland so much that he actually went on a date there with his future on screen spouse. Lori Lachlan, Aunt Becky. They met in the early 80s when they were both working on soap operas. And apparently Lori was the one who actually presented Stamos with his daytime Emmy for his performance on General Hospital. And they dated around this period in the early 80s when they were like 18, 19. They were young. This was long before Full House. And uh, one of the dates was at Disneyland and nothing came of it. But this chemistry was, I guess, pretty obvious when uh, Lori was hired to appear I think it was on the second season of Full House. She was hired as Rebecca Donaldson. It was uh, Danny Tanner's co-host on Wake Up, San Francisco, and it was meant as a really minor, brief role. I think they had something like six episodes in mind. But she became such a fan favorite that the writers just kind of went for it, and she became a regular by season three. And they were married by season four, and she uh, she wore her real life wedding dress for their TV wedding. But the spark between them seemed so real that rumors began to swirl that they actually had an off screen romance going. And apparently this wasn't the case, much to uh, John Stamos's great regret. According to Lori, the timing was always off. She was married when they were doing the show. And then by the time she got divorced, John Stamos uh, got with Rebecca Romaine. And though they're both married now, uh, presumably happily, I hope, Stamos has called her the one that got away, which, I mean, Mm. imagine a world where Aunt Becky and, i guess just let my New England show there, Aunt Becky and uh, Uncle Jesse got together in real life. But sadly- it was not to be.
3: Well, she would have. Uh, she would have dragged him into the college admissions thing. So <laughs> it's better. How could you? It's better Stamos. <laughs> going to try to
0: gloss over that in this episode. Yeah. This is this is a
3: happy fantasy realm. Yeah, but that's true. It's better Stamos didn't doesn't have any financial crimes on his
0: record now because of that. We're gonna take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more too much information in just a moment.
2: Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.
0: Okay, round two. Name something
3: that's not boring.
1: A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire,
3: huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com
0: has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No necessary. by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort.
3: I don't know, dates? I guess... Yeah, we'll keep that segue. That's fine. Uh, that's all I got for now. So, while Stamos and Laurie had instant and obvious chemistry, the stamos Saget connection took a little while to foster. And, and and actually, Stamos alluded to this a little bit in, I think, his eulogy for Sagat at the funeral that they talked about just they had different approaches to acting and their sense of humor. So... Saget and Coulier are already buds from the LA comedy scene and they decide to do this boys trip out to Las Vegas after their shooting on the first season wraps. Um, but there are actually two different versions of this story. One is that Stamos and Coulier, who were both single at the time, really bonded during the trip and went on double dates together while Sagitt, who was married at the time, stayed behind. The other version is that Sagitt pulled out of the trip at the last minute, leaving the other two to bond in Vegas. So the end result, though, whichever version of the story that you prefer lives in your heart, <laughs> is that Coulier and Stamos ended up being really good buds, and the writers began writing them more as a duo who worked together in various jobs, like advertising and a late night radio show together. And turns out Sagid really was kind of the odd man out of this show, <laughs> because as we discovered years later with the aristocrats, his character in real life was absolutely nothing like America's dad, uh, which was the character that he got tagged as basically and that absolutely filthy pitch black sense of humor that was such a major part of his personality because as he would posit himself there was so much tragedy in his family life um three years to the day before he was born his mother had given birth to twin sisters who died days after birth and then three years later obviously he was born (laughs) and writing again in dirty daddy he said, Is that an astrologer's wet dream or what? <laughs> so this this whistling past the graveyard humor is such a such a part of his personality because, you know, he that wasn't the only loss that he suffered. After he's born growing up, he lost close family members almost like clockwork every two years or so. Two sisters, one to a brain aneurysm and the other to the rare autoimmune rheumatic disease, scleroderma, plus four uncles and quite a bit a bit of friends. Um, and this gave him a morbid streak. He would say that he never felt he would live to be 50 years old. And it, more positively, it set the stage for him to use comedy as a way of escaping pain. He would later write, It was this part of my DNA that allowed me to lose two of the most important people in my life and push even harder to pursue a career in making people laugh. Um, Another random LA showbiz connection is that one of his early mentors was Larry Fine, better known as Larry of the Three Stooges. That's crazy. Yeah. They they became close when Saga like was a teen. They spent and and they spent a lot of time with Fine in a nursing home. Um and they clashed over it. Uh, he, sorry, not Larry, not not Larry Fine and Saget, Saget and Stamos actually
0: clashed over this. They clashed in the beginning, but I, th- but it quickly they they grew. They all three of the main, you know, the leads grew very close. I think it was more early on in like the first season when they just sensibi- you know, sensibilities towards humor and sensibilities towards how they approached acting and everything was different. But they all eventually became, you know, probably one of the tightest casts in 90s sitcom history that i can think of
3: yeah in stamos's eulogy for saget you know he said (laughs) he said he loved hard and deep q bob to make a joke out of hard and deep (laughs) he would do he would do that during tragedies and honestly it would piss me off sometimes that's how he got through the darkness and sadly he had a lot of it in his life now that i'm dealing with him dying i sort of get it and this is in the context of the eulogy that he delivered for him which he you know Sagitt hosted uh, Stamos's dad's funeral. He wow! He helped through it. Um, he helped him through divorces. Uh, they were really
0: tight. Oh, okay, man. sorry. No, I, I I didn't realize that's going to make this this segue uh, even more hamfisted than it already was. <laughs> um, eventually, Stamos and Sagitt bonded and they became very close, as you mentioned. But there was someone else Stamos didn't uh, initially appreciate early on in the series, or should I say, two people. The Olsen twins. According to show creator Jeff Franklin and numerous others associated with the show, the Olsons were hired not really by virtue of their acting talent, because I think they were something like nine months old when the shooting began, and not really even because of their cuteness either, because I don't know, infants are all pretty cute, but simply because they didn't cry at the auditions. Working with kids. You know, in, in films and TV show shoots is tricky because of child labor laws. They're very strict about how much time that these kids can spend on the set, which is why employing twins is a pretty nice workaround. You can basically double your time on the shoot with them. Um, I think infants could work 20 minutes at a time. So with twins, it buys you 40. So uh, with time being of the essence, you don't want to waste precious minutes trying to get these babies to stop crying. So you want to go with babies that seem like, you know, have a pretty chill personality and are the least likely to cry. And Mary-Kate and Ashley apparently were the only babies that didn't cry at the audition. So that uh, was instrumental in getting them the role. Unfortunately, this proved to be something of a fake out because once filming began, I guess they cried a lot. And they apparently cried so much that John Stamos tried to get the twins replaced, and which is, you know, insane to think now. And he admitted this years later at a Television Critics Association event in 2016. And he said, uh, it's sort of true that the Olsen twins cried a lot. It was very difficult to get the shot. So I said, get them out. This is actually 100% accurate. They brought in a couple of, these are his words, unattractive redheaded kids. And if you're listening, I'm sorry. Those are his words. Uh, we tried that for a while and that didn't work. Producers were like, all right, Get the Olsen twins back. And that's the story. Uh, so the Olsen twins <laughs> stayed. But Stamos, in later years, actually became instrumental in keeping them both on the show. Because as the twins got older, they began to look more distinct from one another. The Olsens are fraternal twins, which means they don't share the exact same genetic material. So by the time they were around six years old, producers were concerned that the audience would be able to tell them apart. And for a time, they considered choosing just one. Uh, Mary Kate's the one that I hear the most often. However, by this point, the fan base for the, the twins as a as a unit was huge. And the dismissal of one would have resulted in some kind of, you know, big outcry. So Snamos of all people was the one who went about for them, insisting that they both continue to play the role, which um which what did people say about Mary Kate? Why was she the favorite? Uh, you know, I don't know. I I apparently when they were shooting, it wasn't random what scenes they were giving. I think hmm. for I've heard multiple versions of this, but apparently Mary-Kate was better at tackling like the serious dramatic moments and Ashley was the one who was better at tackling the comedic moments in scenes in the show. Hmm. I've heard the reverse of that, too. But um, so maybe that had something to do with it, whichever, you know, dramatic or comedic, whatever you want to believe was the one that they valued the most. Maybe that was why I'm, I'm not hmm. sure. But uh, in any event, they both remained on the show through to the end of the series. And for some reason, the show was really dedicated to preserving this illusion that they were one person. And through almost the entire series, they credited them to Mary-Kate Ashley Olsen on the screen. Uh, it was, wasn't was until the eighth and final season that they had both names on there with like an ampersand. And uh, this is like really crazy how much they committed to preserving the illusion that they were one person early on uh, in the first seasons of the show when they were toddlers and Mary Kate and Ashley were teething at different rates and their teeth came in, you know, in different ways. So they apparently were fitted with mini dentures for continuity, which just feels insane to me and borderline child abuse. I mean, I don't know, maybe not, but yeah, I I mean,
3: the the Olsen like twins sort of, whole vibe these days seems a lot less surprising (laughs) when you when you realize
0: that they were like Like baby dentures yeah
3: yeah made to wear baby dentures and were
0: you know worldwide millionaires before they were 10 right Uh, I mean worldwide millionaires I mean they you know they really made bank on this show. Uh, I guess when yeah, they were walk hired. Me, walk me through that. Yeah, I, I I think they started out fairly modestly at like $2,400 an episode. Uh, I saw one source at $4,000 an episode, but $2,400 is what I see most frequently, which is not bad considering they were mostly just gurgling. They're, they're a, a glorified prop, basically. I mean, let, let's, <laughs> let's, you know, I'm sorry to really everybody for what I just said, but um, <laughs> But then in, in 1990, the show had become a big hit and I guess their mom had kind of made moves to get them taken off the show, supposedly for fear of them missing out on a you know on a normal childhood, which is, which is like, reasonable. Uh, which is very reasonable. Then the producers, I guess, upped their salary tenfold to 25000 an episode and also the freedom to do endorsements and other media opportunities while still working on the show. And apparently by the end of the show, this ballooned to something like 80000 an episode. Uh, and this was when they had their, you know, side gigs like movies and books and other assorted, you know, side hustles all going. But, you know, apparently they worked their asses off. I mean, all three of the the male leads on the show complained to production staff about the number of scenes that these little girls were in and they were worried that they were being pushed too hard. But um, the production staff, not to mention the kids' parents, also had some complaints about the three leads because they apparently weren't always very kid-friendly on the set.
3: Yeah, so unsurprisingly, that usually came down to Saget and uh, his sense of his sense of humor. Um, he would make all kinds of dirty jokes on the set. He would swear, and he would also act as the <laughs> as an instigator. He would egg on the other guys to act up, and he would write in "dirty daddy," which we're just gonna keep coming back to and using the whole name every time. I couldn't help it. The whole show for me was like a beautiful Jekyll and Hyde experience. Being silly helped us survive a super clean-cut show that at first mostly got panned, but then in retrospect became part of family television humor. Following these outbursts of non-family-friendly humor, producers and the parents of the kids would drag the offending party into a conference room for a good talking to. And there's a couple great anecdotes here, so we're, we'll start off with, uh, <laughs> we'll start off with the rubber doll standing. Ooh,
0: yeah. That's, I don't like where this is going, even just from that. Yeah.
3: <laughs> so. In these three guys' defense, a lot of this went down when the kids weren't actually on the set. Um, But, as we'll find out, they were watching. A very particularly embarrassing example occurred because Saget was running lines with a rubber doll that was on the the shooting set as a stand-in for Michelle. Because of child labor laws, the kids could only be on the set part-time. So instead of bringing the Olsen twins in for every rehearsal, the cast used a four-foot rubber stand-in doll to practice their lines. Wonder what that went for on eBay when some creeper got a hold of it. Uh, As Saget later wrote, only adults were there, a lot of crew guys around whom I like to make laugh. What could have happened next? So I'm throwing the doll around, pretending to do stuff to it, quote, as one would if there were no child actors within a couple soundstage distance and you were a comedian with no moral compass in front of a crowd of people. And what I didn't know was that the television monitors were turned on in the schoolroom, which is where, they, where the kids would go to learn on, on set, and all of the dressing rooms, and in certain offices on the studio lot. Like I said, I was an idiot. Dave Coulier, similarly. I mean, it's really all three of these guys, and that's what's so adorable about this is that they were the three musketeers on this show. But uh, Dave Coulier told Oprah on her Where Are They Now segment... Uh, regaled her with a story about the three of them doing a scene pantsless one day when the kids were off set, uh, which, uh, you know, had to have been like a mid-shot or them behind furniture or something. But at the end of the shooting day, and the crew all thought it was hilarious because it was the 90s and humor was different back then. (laughs) So they all thought this was so, so funny to have three grown men shooting a scene in their underwear, or at least partially in their underwear. Uh, And for a time... Things were going swimmingly. Everyone was cracking up. They're they're having the end of the shooting day. They're relaxing. And then all the children, actors, parents, and the on-set tutor come storming onto the set to remind them again. Maybe this was before the other incident, but to say, yeah, guys, the monitors are still on and everyone can see you. Um, and that's not even the weirdest or worst thing that they've,
0: uh, that they did during the set. Apparently. Well, uh, I would say that there's a quantifiable difference between getting pantsless in front of a bunch of kids and what you're about to say, but, but continue. Okay.
3: Okay. We'll split hairs over that later. Also, (laughs) according to Saget's memoir, Dirty Daddy, the three of them were getting tired waiting to shoot their scene for Michelle's birthday in one episode. And just past the time, they just started doing whippets. (laughs) They just found... You know, it's a birthday cake seed. There's whipped cream in the freezer or in the fridge. So these three middle aged men well, I guess they were middle aged at that point. Whatever. They're adults. They're they make Hollywood money. They should not <laughs> be doing whippets, but they did. Um, and
0: you like, know you them doing MDMA on the set? Like
3: Yeah, yeah, I know. Like, well, I guess cocaine would be the obvious choice. I guess I don't know, man. Whippets is like that's like central Pennsylvania <laughs> shit. That's not Holly that's not Hollywood. Anyway, uh, sorry, Central Pennsylvania. (laughs) Um... But apparently, some of these kid actors could give as good as they got. Yeah, I mean,
0: for all their concerns about like shocking children, the kids got some pretty good lines on the show too. Like one of the my favorites that I can just I just remember hearing on the show was, you know, Stephanie was always sparring with with uh, her older sister DJ's friend Kimmy Gibbler, like you know the annoying next door neighbor. Uh, one time she overhears DJ and Kimmy talking about horoscopes, and Stephanie says, "What's a horoscope? What is that, Kimmy? A telescope that sees only your face?" Bam. Horoscope, good line. It's a decent line. We're on the topic of everybody's favorite annoying next-door neighbor, Kimmy Gibbler. Uh, The actress who played her, Andrea Barber, actually auditioned initially for the role of DJ Tanner. The producers ultimately decided to go with Candace Cameron, but they liked Barber so much that they actually encouraged her to try out for the role of This neighbor Kimmy Gibbler and the part was intended for basically like a one-off bit but the producers liked her so much so they decided to uh to keep her around for the entire run
3: I have like a Proustian sense memory of hating her (laughs) like as a young child who didn't articulate or couldn't articulate or fully grasp like what hatred was I remember being like what is this feeling like I don't I don't like her I, she's really really annoying <laughs> anyway she's great she was the prince joffrey of her time <laughs> the character people love to hate i mean yeah that's necessary
0: the the iago if you will the, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah well i guess my first introduction to iago was um was in aladdin Ooh, good and segue thank you thank you very much and uh speaking of aladdin the voice of Aladdin, Scott Wenger, played DJ's longtime boyfriend, Steve, on this show. Do we have to pay Disney just for mentioning Aladdin? Like, I feel Almost like, certainly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's funny. There's an episode we mentioned it earlier, Stamos's favorite episode, The House Meets the Mouse, part one, when the cast go to uh, Disney World and uh, film on location, and DJ imagines Steve as Aladdin, and he comes on dressed as Aladdin and uh, does lines as Aladdin, which is... Um, Adorable, and another cute point about Deej and Steve—they went to prom together in real life, which I love when that Aww. happens. Yeah, I like that. Um, so that's a really great connection with a beloved, you know, a beloved '90s TV show and a beloved '90s film. I would now like to, um, unfortunately, do a bit of myth busting that is probably second only to the Alanis Morissette story about the biggest myth about uh, Full House. And that is that a lot of people say, and you see this on listicles all the time on the internet, that the dog that played Comet, the family golden retriever on the show, was also the dog that played Air Bud in the film Air Bud and its sequel, uh, Air Bud 2, Bud Harder. Um, and thank you for laughing at that. And apparently, isn't technically true. Um, It is sort of split hairs, baby. But that dog, who was used in the Airbud movies, was on the set once for an episode. I think it was in the last season where uh, comedy is revealed to be really good at basketball. And so they brought this dog who could do trick shots. His name was Buddy, appropriately enough for, you know, Airbud to come in and do some uh, some basketball trick shots. Um, he died in uh, nineteen ninety eight unfortunately, but he was apparently an absurdly talented dog, much more talented than I am. He could shoot a basketball. (laughs) He could stop soccer balls and hockey pucks, and he could apparently catch baseballs, uh, presumably in his mouth. Um, So the dog was on the show for one episode, but he was not the dog that they use for comment throughout the series. So I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news with that.
3: I just want to say that Buddy was found by his owner as a stray in Sierra Nevada in the summer of 89. His first appearance was on America's Funniest Home Videos, which makes sense. Yeah. And he was on David Letterman's Late Night three times. Stupid pet tricks, obviously. But yeah, I mean, Buddy was his his starring role. And later he fell into drugs. <laughs> and uh, No, I'm, I'm sorry. But yeah, that's wild that he was a stray that his
0: owner was like, oh, this dog can play sports. I mean, that's probably the equivalent of finding a Barrel of gold bullion. <laughs> yeah, barrels right. Of gold bullion. It's like, like the... F-
3: I mean, I don't know. I, I did not look into this. I don't know anything about this guy, this, this Kevin Chicho guy. But I would venture to guess that this guy saw in this dog what the guy who got <laughs> Grumpy Cat saw, which was dollar <laughs> signs.
0: Just big
3: old dollar signs.
0: I mean, imagine being, if this was the case, the person or the family that gave away air that, oh my that god. Yeah. Airbutt
3: out sh- onto the street. Oh boy. That's someone we gotta track down. <laughs>
0: Please tweet at us at <laughs> abandonairbud. Yeah. Hashtag abandoned the Hashtag yeah. dirty daddy. <laughs> anyway, uh, while we're we're yeah. drawing connections between Full House and other beloved uh, millennial franchises, this is something I'm sure that everyone knew, but for some reason it still catches me off guard that Candace Cameron Bure, who played DJ Tanner, is the sister of Kirk Cameron from Growing Pains. Maybe it's just a personal thing. I always forget that. Um, No, you're
3: just too sweet. You don't understand the degree to which nepotism runs (laughs) the entire entertainment industry.
0: I don't know, It's just for some reason, that they exist in totally different TV sitcom worlds. Apparently, she missed her only episode of Full House. It's a season was six it? episode, sub-training, graduation blues, because Weird. she went to visit her older brother, Kirk, at at camp.
3: Get to this last bit of Candace ephemera, miscellany.
0: Oh, yeah. But, you know, talk about all the different catchphrases on the show. And there are so many. I mean, you got mm-hmm. it, dude. How rude. Pin a mm-hmm. rose on your nose have mercy, cut it out. There's so many. I think Danny Tanner is the only character in the show that doesn't have a big catchphrase. Although I guess he has Good Morning, San, or Wake Up San Francisco. So I suppose yeah. you know, there's one. But um, Candace Cameron's, uh, rather DJ's catchphrase in the show is Oh My Lanta. Apparently like her brother Kirk, a famous, uh, famously evangelical uh, Christian, Candace is also very devout and she reportedly came up with the phrase Oh My Lanta in place of Oh My God because she didn't want to take the Lord's name in vain. That's the story I've read, which seems to scan. Um,
3: yeah. Didn't Kirk Cameron
0: do all the left behinds? He did all the left behinds. He also popularized the, uh, not true duckin, uh, crocaduck, crocaduck. What the is f- that? It's, uh, you're not familiar with this? No. He was basically... Trying to poke holes in the theory of evolution. Uh, oh
3: right, okay,
0: yeah. And he he said that if it existed, we would have. And he held up a picture of this badly photoshopped monstrosity of a crocodile and a duck combined together. Um, <sighs> <laughs> Do you want to take us into greener pastures, Hagel? <laughs> yeah, uh, onto less complicated
3: uh pleasures which is the theme song truly one of the all-time tv theme songs i mean it's incredible but could be easily mistaken for many others because you said you do this i also do this your brain combines the full house theme and the family matters theme and there are mashups of it online so we can't be the only people but there's a good reason for that which is that both songs are written and sung by the same person jesse frederick so frederick and his writing partner bennett salve came up with those songs and series creator jeff franklin you know probably to get some percentage points off of this Kicked in some lyrics, but Frederick is sort of the unsung hero of the TGIF lineup. I mean, not only did he do Family Matters and Full House, but Step by Step and Perfect Strangers. Wow. So that man takes up a disproportionately large chunk of space in my brain. And while we're on the opening credits, the people who are driving over the Golden Gate Bridge, which may be the first time I ever saw the Golden Gate Bridge was in the Full House uh, opening credits. Um, rice a the- for
0: me. It might have been the second. Oh, right, Rice commercial, yeah. yeah.
3: It's uh, it's not even, it's not even the actual cast. They're just lookalikes, which is so funny. I mean, and they couldn't get him to drive across the bridge for one shot because they were in L.A. Probably. Um, and while we're doing musical lightning round, well, let's let let me just start off our musical lightning round by talking about
0: the only band that matters, Jesse and the Rippers.
3: Yeah, they were just a session band. They were in L.A. A bunch of L.A. You know hot players and they all knew each other from when stamos was on general hospital because there's an episode where his character in that show sings in a rock band and you know stamos again just a big genial nerd he would uh jam with all of these guys between rehearsals and between tapings and i just want you to read this fact because i know you're brady bunch guy. so go ahead
0: Oh, yeah. You may remember that Uncle Jesse is kicked out of the Rippers at one point in the series due to his commitment to his family. Uh, Do you know who he's replaced by? Do tell. Barry Williams, a.k.a. Greg Brady of the Brady Bunch. And the Mm. band has changed their name to Barry and the Rippers, which doesn't really have the same ring as Jesse and the Rippers.
3: No, it doesn't. And that's our segue into the Full House Guest Stars
0: Lightning Round. All right. Oh, my God. There have been so many guests on this show over the years, including Phyllis Diller, the aforementioned Kirk Cameron and his future wife Chelsea Noble. Jaleel White who plays Urkel from Family Matters which is also in the TGIF Expanded Universe. Uh, he shows <laughs> yeah, up. So
3: much of this is cross promotional.
0: Yeah. He shows up when Stephanie gets teased for having new glasses. Uh, Danielle Fishel also shows up from the TGIF Synergy. She plays she was on Topanga from Boy Meets World. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's Scott Baio. There's Wayne Newton. There's Frankie Avalon and Annette Funicello. There's Frank... Frankie Valley, Vanna White, Suzanne Summers, Ben Stein, the mm-hmm. aforementioned Barry Williams, Mickey Rooney, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, he is in the uh, the episode with Airbud that we mentioned earlier. Uh, those are just the biggest, but the Beach Boys have the distinction yeah. of appearing the most. I mean, they, they're they there, I think, three times. Uh, and they weren't just credited as guest stars. They were special guest stars, was how they were credited on the, on the title screen. And they were in the episode when uh, Uncle Jesse and Aunt Becky get married, which is fitting because there's one thing that John Stamos loves more than Disney. It's the Beach Boys. I mean, he goes- yeah. Well, I, Explain. I, I love this so much. He goes so far back. You know, he grew up in Southern California and the Beach Boys, you know, in the in the early mid-60s were gods. And Stamos started playing drums as a kid and the Beach Boys were, were his idols. I mean, apparently Mike Love, the singer in the Beach Boys, his um, his parents lived near Stamos growing up and he used to kind of go over to their house and like peek through the window and see all Beach Boys gold records on the wall. I mean, they were just, you know, his love for the Beach Boys is is too pure for this world. So- <laughs> When he got a little older, he became friendly with uh, one of the Beach Boys touring guitarists and he was invited backstage at one of their gigs around the same time that Stamos was in General Hospital. And at this time, again, he'd won an Emmy. So he was like kind of a heartthrob. So he goes backstage and all these girls are following back there and screaming. And uh, Mike Love saw all the women gathered around Stamos and he was intrigued. And he says, you know, he asks the, the touring guitarist who was Stamos's friend, who, "Who's who's that guy? Oh, you yeah, know, he's on TV. Do women always follow him around like that? Oh, yeah. Well, get him onto the stage. <laughs> so they, they they just had John Stamos come out to play drums on like an encore or something. And um, prior, I mean, this is purely born out of like Mike Love's just desire to boost the band's sex appeal yeah. on stage, I guess. Yeah. So over the years, like pre House, Stamos played drums and other percussion on stage with the Beach Boys during like encores and stuff every now and then. I mean it kinda of made sense. I mean, the band at this stage played with two drummers a lot on stage and the original Beach Boys drummer, Dennis Wilson, died in nineteen eighty three, so he kind of had a, a spot to fill. And at this stage in the by the late eighties, radio wasn't really playing the Beach Boys anymore. They kind of aged out of top 40. So Stamos did what he could to try to get them on the shows that he was on. He got a guest spot for them on the sitcom that he did before Full House with Jack Klugman and then he got them on Full House and in uh, 1988, he appeared in the video for Kokomo, which was, you know, a huge, ended up being a huge number one song. He played congos and steel drums on that video. Uh, I think he played drums for them on the title track to the movie Problem Child that the Beach Boys did. Uh, which is such an insane jump from pet sounds and good vibrations that the mind reels um do you know what in 1990
3: no no i was gonna say do you know what the name of john Stamos' first band was no destiny
0: oh that's that's a that is an 80s name right there that's um he also sang of course i mean most Full House fans remember him singing a version of the Beach Boys song forever on the show. I've, it might have even been on the wedding episode. I can't remember. And later on, Stamos produced the Beach Boys made for TV biography with uh, Mike Love called American Family. I I, I have I taped it off TV as a kid in 2000. I, I love it. I watched it all the time. Um, <laughs> all in all, it's a nice dream come true scenario for Stamos. And I like that. Um Jody Sweetin, who played Stephanie Tanner, had kind of the opposite experience when Little Richard guested on the show. Yeah. Um, apparently, he <laughs> appeared on an episode singing uh, Itsy Bitsy Spider, and he's doing his Little Richard style piano. And he finishes a piano flourish, and he accidentally smacked Jody Sweeton in the face. Um, <laughs> and telling a story years later, Jody Sweeton said, Oh, he felt so bad. But I'm on a fairly short list of people who can say they've been slapped by Little Richard. So thankfully she took a a generous view of the situation the worst part is that right afterwards he went (laughs) (laughs) i mean no
3: doubt that's what what really hurt as you meditate on that
1: we'll be right back with more too much information after these messages
0: One of the big guests that they apparently always wanted to get during the initial run of the show was New Kids on the Block because Candace Cameron and Andrea Barber were both, you know, huge fans. They were prime New Kids on the Block era, you know— fandom age in the early 90s but it never ended up happening until fuller house went into production 25 years later something like that and their dream got to come true but uh but we're getting ahead of ourselves with fuller house yeah one thing at a goddamn time jordan i know i'm sorry but um there nearly wasn't a fuller house because there nearly wasn't even a second season of full house bum uh, bum bum yeah i mean the, the original reviews were like legendarily bad when it premiered in 1987. Uh, People magazine gave it an F and opinions pretty much stayed that way until I think like four or five seasons in. It took a long time to actually get you know critics on board for this show. And the show was nearly canceled after its first season. And even after it was renewed, Bob Saget apparently nearly quit because he felt like the storylines were, and these are his words, too cheesy, which, eh, not, yeah, not, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. He later said, I think it was in, uh, what was the name of his book, Hagel? Dirty Daddy. I Yeah, I believe it was in Dirty Daddy that he said that he just wasn't <laughs> connecting with the scripts, and he didn't feel like his performance was very good, and that he just didn't feel funny, which, I mean, to be fair, if, to go from being in a Richard Pryor movie to Full House, like, yeah, that scans. That's a bit of a jump. Yeah. Uh, his frustration got so deep that he apparently just quit learning his lines <laughs> And he later went on to credit his TV daughter, Candace Cameron Bure, DJ, for helping him learn to sort of accept the role, to accept the inner Danny Tanner. You know, she kind of said like, you remember when when you were, as my dad, telling me about the death of our mom, because we probably should have mentioned this earlier, the whole series hinges on the idea that the Tanner, uh, you know, the mother of the Tanner daughters was killed in a drunk driving accident. And he can play on pathos. He can bring heart to this character. So that kind of made Saget, Realized that you know there was an authenticity mm-hmm. to what he was doing and he was proud of that so he was able to you know channel being real and authentic into those moments that made him decide to uh to want to stay on the show
3: it's weird that this show has become so iconic and so beloved and you know gotta reboot requel have you heard the term requel no <laughs> Gotta I like reboot, it yeah reboot requel uh Because it seemed like it was just constantly in the crosshairs. I mean, Franklin left the show in 1992 after the fifth season. He jumped ship to produce Hanging with Mr. Cooper, which... With admirably clear eyes, he has repeatedly cited as the biggest
0: regret of his life. Wait, I, this is a total unrelated tangent, but I—it's it, insane that I think of this. I, I, Mark Curry, the guy who was the the lead on on hanging with with, Hangin Mr. with Cooper, Mr. Cooper, yes, he had some yeah. accident in like I remember hearing about it in the late nineties, early two thousands, where like an aerosol can fell behind like a radiator in his basement, yes, and exploded, and two thousand six, and, and he was like down in the basement doing laundry when this happened and he got like a fifth of his really- body was burned. <laughs> Are you? <laughs> I'm reading about uh, okay, this Okay, I now, was gonna yeah. say I thought you just like Are you sure you want to go into this? I mean, that was as much as I was gonna get into but I think of it <laughs> okay, I think of it every it- time I see like aerosol bottles anywhere near, you know a heating mechanism or an open flame. I think about Mark yeah. Curry which
3: Uh, You know, hashtag don't burn aerosol cans. Yeah, this is our one takeaway
0: from, you know, our our bit of of, of news (laughs) you can use on this is, uh, you know. (laughs) The more you know. I I mean, I think of this on a fairly regular basis and have for the last 20 years. So so there you go. A little bit of uh, a take-home value there. Franklin jumped ship to produce Hanging with Mr.
3: Cooper, which he says he regrets. Another fun fact about Hanging with Mr. Cooper. Alice Cooper was initially approached to create a theme song for that show and turned it down over scheduling conflicts. <laughs> I mean, that's that's anyway, what he said. Is, yeah. Well, this is this is either what you love or hate about this show is us just being like, "Did you know?" It's like a anyway, it's like a, a, a trivia fractal. <laughs> yeah. The Fibonacci sequence of useless knowledge. Anyway, From season six onward, after Franklin's departure, Full House is completely different. You know, they get into their Jumping the Shark era where Michelle buys a donkey. Michelle thinks her feet are too big. And Franklin is quick to pin these flaws on his own absence, saying it suffered as it constantly tinkered with the romantic and professional lives of the characters. In particular, he uh, resented the decision
0: to break DJ and Steve up for no reason. I agree. Yeah, because she started dating... um He started dating some like rich guy who tried to win her over by hiring Frankie Valli. I, I, for some reason, I really remember that episode. He like comes gotcha. down the stairs of the Tanner family house singing, uh, can't take my eyes off you. Yeah. Of course. Because that's what every
3: child in the early 90s would have been wooed by, was a, a boomer rock era singing a song from 15 years before they were born.
0: I probably would have tried that. My when Well, I, I was going to say you, yeah. When I was around the same time Full House was on and I was maybe six or seven, I was given a toy... But a, but a good toy accordion, and mm. I had a, a crush on the the girl who lived up the road for me, and I thought that by kind of walking, marching up and down in front of her house, playing the accordion, she would somehow look out the window and see me and recognize me. We never hung out outside of school. I don't know why she would have any reason to know that I lived nearby and would be what so intrigued. Um, I, the only song I could play, which was Hot Cross Buns. Um, <laughs> and I did it long enough that her mother actually came out and said, oh, she's not home. Because she was clearly annoyed after twenty minutes of a seven year old boy badly playing uh, a three note song on accordion so so i to, to get back to your point, I probably would have tried to hire Frankie Valley too had I the means to to win over my my seven year old uh crush sure
3: well <laughs> uh I don't have a segue for that. Yeah, sorry, but, I just um, threw a bomb in the middle of your segue. <laughs> no, it's incredible. So the show was initially supposed to have a ninth season, but that was supposed to take place on the then new WB network. Uh, it was going to be the old classic property that they were going to try and use to launch this fledgling network and its lineup of shows. It's kind of be and, the
0: anchor of their their lineup. Yeah, you
3: know? and Stamos, not about it. He didn't like how it was being dropped and moved. He basically felt that they were being put out to pasture uh, and decided that the eighth season of the show was going to be his last. And Candace Cameron, is it beer or Bure? I think it's Bure. Okay. She's Candace... married to a
0: hockey player, which would have uh, to be French Canadian. Sure, sure. And she met her, uh, her husband at a hockey event with Dave Couillet. Bam. I'm glad we got, that's the one fact toy that I didn't find a home for in here. I'm glad I got that in there. <laughs>
3: uh, so Candace Cameron Bure also planned on the eighth season as her last and would do sporadic guest appearances during the ninth season because um, DJ went off to college, so they had the classic, oh, she's coming home to visit. Um, but Cameron was actually in real life planning on attending college after the eighth season. So the show loses those two, and basically it's the dominoes start falling. Everyone else decides that it's time to call it quits and... The writers follow suit, and the eighth season on ABC, 1994 to 1995, is the final season of the show. There was originally intended to be a series finale, which was, you know, prosaically titled Our Very Last Show, but it never went forward. And to illustrate the concept of linear time, DJ and Stephanie are 10 and 5 years old when the show began. Michelle is nine months old. And when the show ends, they are 18, 13, and eight years old, respectively.
0: Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that the show never really got its like its big farewell moment. And I guess when, when Jeff Franklin was putting uh, Fuller House together, which we'll talk more about in a minute, he kind of meant for their premiere episode to basically be like the farewell that full house never got that was kind of like that episode sort of filled with a lot of winks to the camera and in jokes and stuff that you know was kind of meant to wrap up all the loose ends that never got you know never got dealt with uh when the show kind of unceremoniously went off the air um but yeah really it didn't kind of have its big final moment until fuller house came back um Jeff Franklin I mean you know even though we moved on with uh hanging with Mr Cooper <laughs> uh he never really let go of his favorite creation and in 2016 around the time that the Fuller House reboot was uh being finalized he actually bought the famous house in San Francisco that was used for exterior shots on the show and uh, in the show its address is um 1882 Gerard Street which is a, a fake address and I won't give the real address speak for the interests of the privacy of the people who live there. But Jeff Franklin's intent was to turn this house, you know, into... A tourist attraction, basically. He was going to renovate it to return the exterior to its, you know, former full house glory, and supposedly renovate the interiors so that they match the set of the show, just kind of like they did with the uh, with the Brady Bunch house. And then he was going to have people tour it. But according to TMZ, Franklin's plans fell through when the neighbors caught wind of it and lodged complaints because they just didn't want all those extra tourists flooding this area. I mean, God knows they get enough tourists as it is. It's called the area is called Postcard Row, which is like next to. uh, uh, the Golden Gate Bridge is like, you know, one of the most recognizable places in San Francisco. So, you know, with Jeff Franklin's plans and ruin, he ended up selling the house in 2020 for $5,350,000. San Francisco and, uh, real estate, baby. I mean, well, you say that, but it's a four bedroom. It's like 3,700 square feet with an English garden in the back. It's located in like the most desirable location in the most expensive city in the country. In a way, I'm surprised it's not more, (laughs) but uh, the new owner also got a priceless bit of TV history. It was a cement tile, which featured the handprints of signatures of everybody in the cast. But in addition to having his place secured in TV history, there's also a a, a famous movie tie-in too. The Full House house can be seen in Tommy Wiseau's The Room. So that's like another million right there, right? Oh, I mean, that's, yeah. But Jeff Franklin has ties to another very famous house. And, um, you know, as, as you'll probably discover throughout the course of this series, I have a short list of uh, of fixations and obsessions that I keep returning to. Uh, the Beatles are one. The sinking of the Titanic is another. Uh, the Apollo space program. Uh, and another of these is the Manson murders. Um, <laughs> I, I feel like I should apologize for that. But Jeff Franklin, creator of Full House, one of the most wholesome TV shows in American history bought the house where the Manson family murdered Sharon Tate and her friends. I just I I have a hard time reconciling that fact. I mean, um, at least he didn't buy it and preserve it. Right, he didn't make it a tourist attraction like he did with the full house. House. You're absolutely yes. right. He uh he ended up having it raised and he built a 21,000 square foot, which I can't even imagine the size, a 21,000 square foot Mediterranean style mansion in its place complete with a 15-car garage, two swimming pools, one of which is 75 yards long and has a 35-foot waterfall, <laughs> a lazy river, six wet bars, three waterfalls. Sorry. Um, <laughs> that was a 35-foot water slide going into that pool, five full-wall aquariums, a private Elvis museum, nine bedrooms, 19... 19- 19 bathrooms. (laughs) I I, I, that for some reason of even more than a private Elvis museum, the 19 bathrooms is what throws me, and also a grotto because what obscene mansion is complete without a grotto? Following in the grand tradition of Hugh Hefner, (laughs) I Um, just uh, when your house has a lazy river, like that is
3: truly that that's what throws it for me. Like talk about the apex of conspicuous consumption. (laughs)
0: Like I mean, what's the over under on this place being absolutely hella haunted though? Oh, it's got to be. Yeah, no, absolutely. absolutely. And maybe he has experienced this because Jeff Franklin just put the house for sale for eighty-five million dollars. Can we should probably say that in like a Doctor Evil voice. Nah. Okay, no, you know, I'm not, you're really striking out with uh, with impression requests with you, but uh, when it sells, or I guess I should say if it sells for that amount, it's got to be on the list for the most expensive homes ever sold in L.A. The current record is held by Petra Ecclestone, the petrol heiress, who sold Aaron Spelling's former mansion in 2019 for almost $120 million, good Lord. Uh, speaking of overselling, I should probably say before we go any further, I may have oversold the Jeff Franklin house anecdote. Uh, he bought his house from a real estate developer who would already knocked down Sharon Tate's house and built his crazy new one, but he bought the property where the murder occurred. So I still think it's really haunted.
3: It's called the Cielo, the Cielo,
0: Cielo? Cielo drive. Yeah. yeah. Well, Cielo drive is the address. Yeah.
3: Oh, this New York post listing says it only has 18 bathrooms so I oh sorry uh oh okay we'll
0: knock off uh, knock off a million for that <laughs> <laughs> well, he bought it from, I I, th- I don't know if he bought it from, I think it was being leased before Jeff Franklin bought it. The original house where Sharon Tate was murdered was famously uh, occupied by Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails, who mm-hmm. turned the living room where Sharon Tate was killed into a recording studio that he dubbed Le Pig after what uh, they wrote on the door in her blood. He was such a uh, and charmer. He recorded- yeah, he recorded downward spiral there and then I guess when he moved out he took the door and brought it down to uh to New Orleans where he made a studio and I think an old funeral home if I recall that yeah. and uh, I think it was called Nothing Studios and he put the door from Sharon Tate's house uh on the front there. So um weirdo. So yeah, that's that's more than you feel like knowing about Sharon Tate's house. But <laughs> Full House also was a connection, a physical connection to uh, many other pieces of Hollywood history. Uh, the sound stage where Full House was made at Warner Brothers had previously been home to Wonder Woman in the 70s. And after Full House was canceled in 1995, it was taken over by friends. And uh, apparently, some special little mementos from the Full House days were left behind. Apparently, Dave Couillet used to shoot his underwear into the rafters of his dressing room. <laughs> And some got stuck up there because apparently the production of Full House was like Animal House, basically. Yeah. And then when John Stamos came to guest star on Friends for the uh, 2003 episode, the one with the donor, he claimed that he went and found Dave's underwear still stuck up in the rafters of his old dressing room. Gross. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We we don't. That's more than you need to know about Dave Coulier's old underwear.
3: Yeah. But while we're talking about old underwear, no, I have. That's not a. It's not a good segue. I should we're, stop
0: trying to do the segues i'm we're sorry really big
3: into segues here though i i like a good segue i like a i like a bad segue maybe even more anyway there's no way to grace gracefully go into this we should talk about the lifetime movie because lifetime is at this point famous for doing these unauthorized stories of stuff they they've done uh saved by the bell i know they did they've done ones on pop all the like teen pop phenoms and did they do the alia one too they did, oh, maybe, yeah. I think they did. Um, Anyway, and they don't really give a shit about <laughs> anything. <laughs> the house looks different. The characters look nothing like anyone. And it was tanked. It was ripped apart by critics. And I don't even think the cast, like, Addressed it in the press? Did they? I mean, I if it, if it was anything, it was like a tossed-off line at a presser
0: because oh, the original cast of yeah, the original, oh yeah, the original, the original cast, cast, of the cast of Full Real House Show. had no input in it, and I'm sure were probably pointedly told to ignore it because this was around the time. That Fuller House was going into production.
3: Yeah, and so Fuller House kind of has its genesis in Stamos' repeated efforts to get a Full House movie going at different points. And as of 2009, he was pitching a feature length that would have had Steve Carell playing Danny, Tracy Morgan as Joey, and Dr- James Franco as the Jesse role, uh, which is, I, don't, I guess, as Jeff Franklin saw himself in John Stamos' John Stamos sees himself in James Franco. Anyway, that obviously... It's like, it's like a Xerox of a Xerox of a Xerox. <laughs> yeah. And then it it's like that Warhol thing, yeah. Um, but, you know, around 2015, they start talking about doing a reboot or a requel, uh, whatever you want to call that. And surprisingly, nobody said yes to it until Netflix did is what Stamos relates. Um, The plot basically recycles the setup of the original, but now Candace Cameron has aged into the role of her dad. Her firefighter husband is killed, and she is raising her child in her childhood home with the help of her best friend, Kimmy Gibbler, and her sister, Stephanie. And most of the original cast would come back and pick up their roles again. We will get to those exceptions. And Fuller House actually did a pretty great job at recreating the show's old set from scratch, Um, The only prop from the original series that they went with was the couch, and it was so decrepit that (laughs) it kept giving Andrea Barber allergy attacks for the first few uh, shoots until they could clean it, which, like, they didn't clean it before they started shooting.
0: They just pulled it out of a back lot and were like, here, guys, go nuts maybe jeff franklin like kept it as a souvenir i mean god only or like maybe stamos stamos has got his memorabilia collection maybe i don't yeah, know it's true well god knows maybe, maybe it was in mike love's house <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> god. Uh, that way madness lies we're not going down that <laughs> route all right so but who were the notable holdouts from fuller house
0: yes they they got the couch they got most of the cast but they did not get the Olsen twins, who by this point were fashion moguls, winning CFDA awards and dating siblings of world leaders. Didn't didn't Ashley marry, like, Sarkozy's half-brother or something? Yeah. I, I yeah, was like cool. some French banker. Yeah, something like that. Um, so this should not have been a huge surprise. They had failed to attend the 25th anniversary reunion party in Los Angeles back in 2012. Uh, their publicist said that they weren't able to attend given their work schedules. I'm not going to say they probably could have made time, but... They probably could have made time. Uh, so when Fuller House was announced, everyone wondered, you know, would Michelle be going back with her family? Um, the Olsen twins hadn't acted together in a major project since doing New York Minute in 2004. So this is like 12, <laughs> 13 years earlier. And early discussion seemed hopeful. I guess uh, the head of Netflix hinted that, you know, maybe they could appear. But in the end, it didn't end up happening. Uh, executive producer Bob Boyette told People magazine... Ashley said, I've not been in front of a camera since I was 17, and I don't feel comfortable acting. And Mary-Kate said, I would have to do it because Ash doesn't want to do it, and the timing is so bad for us. So, you know, there's a different set of priorities. There's the geography. You know, the Olsen twins are New York-based, and the show shoot's in LA. And also just the age difference, too. I mean, Dave Couillet would later say, you know, there are family members, but they come at this from a different perspective. Like, You know, when all the adult cast members get together and reminisce, they all have, like, concrete memories of this, whereas the Olsons were just babies for, like, much of the early part of the show. So they don't really share those same memories. It's much more of, like, a distant memory for them. Um, Yeah. It's like getting together with all of your uncles and having them talk
3: about, like, shit that happened when you were an infant. (laughs)
0: <laughs> right? I don't know. There's a point you get to a point in life, too, when you start to care more and more about that and want to reconnect with those memories of things that were like a, a part of your life when you were younger, too. So I get both sides. But the really weird part was apparently there was like really, 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 really tentative discussions to reach out to the other Olsen sister, Elizabeth Olsen, who's now you know a superstar in her own right, which would have been insane. And of course, you know, they Jeff Franklin and everybody quickly decided against it. And Elizabeth Olsen was later quoted as saying, that was weird, (laughs) understatement, (laughs) because it was like, leave me out of this. This has nothing to do with me. I mean, she she apparently never even watched the show as a kid and never really got involved at all.
3: I want to know from you, were you aware that, were you aware there was a third Olsen?
0: I was not aware until she started making movies in like the late. Aughts. Yeah. yeah um, Marthy,
3: marcy, marcy yes. May, marlene or whatever yeah. yeah i was she swept under the rug did they just not was it bad for the olsen brand for there to have been a third one
0: i mean i don't know i mean she might have just been like significantly younger i i mm. don't know because i think I mean, maybe she wasn't that much younger but um yeah no i think there was a brother too
3: maybe i'm wrong but. no that's a bridge too far we're not looking into that oh, yeah, moving on <laughs>
0: The um, Fuller House has made you know numerous references to Michelle's absence. They even made some, I can't even call them thinly disguised, some actual pleas to the Olsen twins on air on the show. They'd written it into the script like, come on by, it'll be fun, which is kind of devastating. They were hopeful, but then in, I think it was 2020, Fuller House wrapped up and no Olsen twins. So, that is uh, a dream deferred. As it is, <laughs> but, yeah. I uh, mean, I they genuinely don't seem to give a shit about
3: acting. I mean, I don't know. I I guess the fashion line, they all that stuff is super. I I well, they win like them...
0: the, the Oscars equivalent of like fashion awards. Like they, yeah. they they're like legitimate. Like I mean, I don't know anything about fashion, so I probably shouldn't say this, but like they they they're extremely <laughs> seem to be very well respected in that world, and you know, obviously yeah. doing very well. Uh, but this brings us to really my my favorite part of the show. Uh, there's nothing that my friend Alex Heigl loves to do more than to crush your beloved childhood idols with deeply disturbing and dark fan theories. And I know he's got some good ones this time around. So uh, take it away, Heigl. Yeah, this builds on our
3: uh, roundup of Rugrats fan theories, which we actually cut off during the last taping because it got so dark. So we'll see if we, uh, if we if these can scale those heights or rather depths. Well, the first one we have is that Uncle Joey is the real dad. Um, there's a theory that posits that Joey uproots his life and moves in with his best friend Danny to help raise his daughter because they aren't really Danny's daughters at all. And that Joey is the real father. Now, People will like to put this forward because the daughters have blonde hair, which is a recessive gene. Danny is a brunette, but Joey is has brown hair. Does that... I don't uh, know anything about
0: uh, genetic I, you, science. You know, does that, does that yeah. hold any kind of water?
3: Yeah. I don't know. I remember doing pundit squares in high <laughs> right. school and that is the extent to which my knowledge of genetics uh, goes. Um, the But the... To me, you're missing the forest for the trees of this theory, because the real nugget around this theory is that Danny and Jesse are lovers, and Jesse's sister, Pamela Tanner, is in on the ruse, married Danny as his beard, because he was worried that their homosexual relationship would hurt his broadcast career. Even though it's in San Francisco, this was the late 80s. So then Pamela in this world had a relationship with Joey, who was the father of all three Tanner girls.
0: And Pamela, I think it's worth saying, was, you know, the, the, the mother who was killed by a drunk driver prior yes. to the show beginning. So that's also th- Danny's that beard. Element.
3: Yes. Yes. So, uh, moving on. <laughs> The next theory is Michelle doesn't exist, which is a classic one of the fan theories. It's a classic rubric. Uh, The theory posits that Danny invented an imaginary daughter to deal with the grief he experienced after losing his wife. And that's why she isn't present in the Fuller House reboot. So the YouTube channel Full House without Michelle has made a number of videos that has the youngest Tanner edited out to prove the point a la garfield without garfield yes and so without michelle in the scenes it's very clear that danny is having an emotional crisis (laughs) although it's not clear why his family and friends would go along with this whole concept maybe it's like do you ever see shutter island where they like set (laughs) up uh, an elaborate like an elaborate faux murder mystery as part of one patient's therapy (laughs) so i don't know maybe maybe dennis lahane who wrote shutter island also wrote (laughs) For Fuller House, ah, uh, that's a grave disservice to Dennis Lehane. Uh, anyway, moving on. M- maybe my favorite out of these, the Tanners are in purgatory, <laughs> <laughs> which we could just stop there. That's it. That's all you got. So, so this theory says that Pamela Tanner, Danny's wife, canonically dead in the in the actual show lineage. In this theory, she's the only person who survived the car accident, and the rest of the rest of the family are stuck in purgatory, which happens to take the form of an upper-middle-class San Francisco <laughs> row home on postcard row. Purgatory it could be San Francisco. Uh, meanwhile, Michelle is secretly a demonic entity who brought them together and keeps them trapped there. She's always the one who brings people back into the house and prevents them from moving to paradise. She loves convincing Jesse to stay because she's sick. So, why are Danny's potential love interests always disappearing? I'm glad you asked. Because they could help him potentially move on from Pam, allowing him to find the peace he needs to heaven. And Michelle cannot allow for that to happen. Much like The Shining and Hotel California, no one ever manages (laughs) to leave the home except for Michelle, who isn't present in the Netflix reboot. DJ Remains... Jesse never moves out. They are stuck there for eternity. So, yeah, waiting for it's waiting for Michelle Tanner.
0: <laughs> the great lost Beckett play.
3: <laughs> oh, man. So, obviously, we are taping this in the fallout from Bob Saget's Untimely Death. And I don't think we could use anything better to go out on this than what his friend John Stamos said about him at his funeral. So I'm just going to go ahead and read a a chunk of that. Um, he says the worldwide ocean of love for Bob has been unbelievable though. It's been hard for me to look at the tributes, stories, magazine covers, millions of social media posts. I feel everyone out there is getting it right. Saying the perfect thing, remembering Bob in these remarkable ways. He says, I've spent days refusing to let him go, but now I'm starting to realize I don't have to, I don't have to say goodbye because he's never leaving my heart and I will continue to talk to him every day and let him know what he means to me. So I know this show meant a lot to you, Jordan, and growing up. It's obviously meant a lot to a lot of people, and I hope that <laughs> regardless of all the stories of Dave Coulier's farting and <laughs> Bob Saget's memoir being called Dirty Daddy, I hope any of this helps people get a little bit closer to a show that gave them so much happiness
0: oh yeah i got a i got a lot of joy uh revisiting all this stuff and a lot of fun memories and a lot of things Uh, i did not know about this show that as you said did did mean a lot to me uh sending good energy to bob saget's family and of course to the man himself wherever he is uh may he live long in syndication uh he will make us laugh uh his clips of his stand up are amazing and hilarious. uh I know he was very active in raising money for sclerodura, which is the disease that took the life of his sister. I know for anyone listening, I know that sounds like from a lot of tributes I've read about him uh that would mean a lot to him to check out some of those charities to uh that raises money for that and um yes, God bless this fantastic show, yeah. Long may he reign. Well, I think that's about it for this episode of Too Much Information. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Jordan Runtog.
3: I'm Alex Heigel. We'll see you next time.
0: Much information was a production of iHeartRadio.
3: The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The supervising
0: producer is Mike Johns. The
3: show was researched,
0: written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex heigl with original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.